Are you guys excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Awesome. As you find your seat, turn to your neighbor, say, how you doing? Like your best friend's impersonation, Joey Tribbiani. How you doing? That's what I said to my wife the first day I met her, and she fell in love. Facts. Wow. We'll end on that note. Well, good morning and welcome to Hill City Church. Welcome all of you viewing online. Welcome to my mother because I know she watches and she's offended that I don't give her a shout out every week. Love you, mom. But we are in this sermon series called Reverber 8 where we're talking about the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. And you might be thinking, why did we call it Reverberate? Well, you'll have to come back in two weeks. Easter morning is going to be bananas. They don't even know what that term is because we're around a whole bunch of people that don't, don't say those things anymore. It's not going to be bananas. It's just going to be really good. You cool with that? Easter Sunday is going to be great. Reverberate. We've been talking about the seven statements of Jesus, and I have been dreading this morning. So I'm going to need you to pretend you're alive. Okay, put a smile on your face for me. Help me preach this morning because, again, like we've been doing, right? We're talking about the seven statements of Jesus, and today I've got eye thirst. And I'm going to do my best to make it mean something for you today. (sighs) I got this. You ready? Eye thirst. Okay, John chapter... 19, verse 28 to 29, Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says this. He says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty, or I thirst, depending on what translation you read. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Okay, I don't normally preach this way, but I got three things for you. If you're taking notes, write down these three things. The significance of I thirst going somewhere. You ready? Number one, it was a fulfillment of the scripture. And you might be thinking, why does that matter? Well, I'm glad you asked. You ready? Bishop Jamie's talked about the fulfillment of scripture last week. Again, if you've been in church culture, we say these things, and I've been looking at at this less from the lens of a pastor and more of the lens of people who don't read their Bible, which there's no shame. I I know you guys don't read your Bible. It's cool. But fulfillment of scripture is kind of a big deal. You know, like in the Old Testament, there were these prophecies, right? These people that thought they heard from God, or maybe they heard from God, and they would make a declaration that the coming Messiah would say certain things, okay? And so when Messiahs would show up, and you do realize that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but there were also other people that claimed to be the Messiah. This was very common in the first century, which is why some of the passages passages of Scripture tell you to, like, beware of the false teachers, and this is what they're going to do, and people think that they're talking about people today, but I don't know anybody on Facebook or Instagram claiming to be the Messiah. If you do, show me. I'd love to follow them. But prophecies were a big deal, okay? It was recorded that it was nearly impossible for someone to claiming to be a Messiah or even someone to being a modern-day prophecy in the fir- or prophet in the first century to fulfill eight prophecies in their lifetime. It was like one and 100 ch- trillion of a chance that they fulfilled eight prophecies within their lifetime. Okay, that was a big deal to a first-century Jew. Jesus fulfilled over 360 in his lifetime. It's one of the major points for scholars who do arguments today. It's one of the major points for why they believe that Jesus actually was the Messiah because of the fulfillment of scriptures that he did. 
Did you know that Jesus not only fulfilled over 360 in his lifetime, but fulfilled over 27 in a 24-hour period? From the moment that Judas betrayed him to the moment that they start arguing about where they're going to bury the Messiah. 27 prophecies. I thirst, one of them. It was a prophecy from the book of uh, Psalm, Psalm 69, 21, and Psalm 22, 15. So this is a big deal that Jesus fulfilled this many prophecies. If you're like, like to argue in, in Christian circles, that's, that's good information for you. You'll, you'll wow your counterpartners, okay? You cool with that? It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Number two, I'm going to spend some time on this one. It, it, it focused, this I thirst statement was a focus on Jesus's humanity, okay? And again, if you're in Christian circles long enough, they'll say things like, he was fully God and fully man. And anybody that claims that argument really doesn't even know what they're saying, myself included. But it's a, it's a crazy dichotomy. Is that the right word? Fully God, fully man. My brain doesn't even fully comprehend that. Fully God, fully man. But the irony of this statement, I thirst, is I wanted to preach this whole sermon around the fact that as Christians today, we shouldn't hunger and thirst for more of God. It's a terrible teaching because there's five places in scripture where Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll never thirst again. But I preached that message like four months ago. So you can find it on YouTube if you care to be mind blown. That you are not to hunger or thirst for more of God. You already have all of God. You have all of God. You have all power because of Christ living in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And it's our job as pastors to help remind you of the power and access that you have to God. It's important, really important. But this focus on his humanity is actually really interesting because the source of living water is now thirsty as he dies. In fact, I read a whole bunch of commentaries on, on what I thirst means. One of my favorite revelations that was shared in the commentaries was that them tying I thirst to Matthew 25, where Jesus was teaching his disciples, talking about this fact that when, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And the disciples said, when did we give you something to drink? And Jesus said, when you did this to any of the least of these, you did this unto me. And it was a challenge to how we serve and minister to people that can do nothing for us. In fact, how you love people that can literally do nothing for you is a, is a pretty strong representation of how you love and worship Jesus. It's a big challenge to us today. But when you think about Jesus' humanity, I think about the practical aspect of it. Like what happened in the crucifixion? Like what, what was this event all about because the reality is is thirst is a natural side effect of what happens when you're crucified. And I I don't know if you know this, I'm going to paint this picture of the Staros, okay? I took six semesters of Greek in seminary. Don't be impressed by that. I remember very little. Thank God for BibleHub.com. You can be a Greek scholar too. Biblehub.com. There you go. You can fact check us. Anytime we talk about Greek, you have as much knowledge as I do. But one of my favorite parts about this class was we would spend days, if not weeks, looking at specific Greek words and understanding their meanings because you realize Greek is a dead language, so it can't be added to. But because it was such a limited language years ago, centuries ago, 
is words have multiple meanings. That's why there's multiple translations. People are like, why are there so many different translations? It's because one Greek word could mean 20 different English words, and those 20 different English words could have drastically different meanings depending on how you translated the scriptures. And every organization that translated scripture have their own bias of how they read the scriptures. So they insert the words that fulfill their bias. It's not necessarily contradictions. It's just well-meaning Christians putting their bias on some of the original text. One of my favorite words to study in Greek was this Greek word staros, S-T-A-U-R-O-S, in case you wanted to fact check me. It's the Greek word for the crucifixion or the cross. But in the first century, this word was extremely common, but never said because of what the staros represented. In fact, I tried to think my hardest this week is coming up with an English word that was as daunting as the staros. And this is a terrible illustration. So if you're offended by this, please come back next week. Our lead pastor will not offend you. But I, it would be like as shocking if I were to drop the F word on stage, you know? Like if I were to drop the F word on stage, some of you would never come back. Others of you in the same room would start bringing all your friends. The irony of that, right? Like, you got to check out this guy. (laughs) But if I were to say it, like, some of you would be shocked. And that's kind of the weight that Staros had. In fact, the Staros was rarely said because of the shame that it brought onto a family. You wouldn't say the word Staros because the word Staros carried so much shame with it. In fact, if someone's Jewish son was crucified... On the staros, they would disown that son because that son brought permanent shame to that family name. In fact, in the Roman culture, they would crucify you in sets of five, which is a beautiful picture of what the number five represents in Christianity. The number five biblically means grace. There's grace found at the cross. But they would crucify people in five, and and, and the Romans didn't even invent crucifixion. They just perfected it. Think about 300, right? The Persians invented, pers- uh, invented the staros, except for instead of crucifying someone standing up, they would stab you in the back, lift the spear, put it in the ground, and watch as your body would dangle down the spear. Gruesome, I know. This is the staros. The Romans perfected it, thinking we can make the suffering last longer if we crucify people upright. You know, Jesus historically wouldn't have been crucified on a cross the way that we view crosses today. It most likely was a pole where his hands would be above his hand. Why is this? It's because when you would dangle there on a cross for hours because you actually died from suffocation. As you would dangle there, your body and joints would become discombobulated and your lungs would begin to fill up with blood so much so that you suffocated or in other words, you drowned in your own blood. The staros. You see, when this Greek word was said, people would picture all of this. It had this intense meaning. They would picture, you know, Jamie talked about last week how you were whipped 39 times because they believed in their culture. If you were whipped 40, you would die. But this whip was this massive whip, and it would have these dangling strings on it, and every string was, was attached to it, uh, a large shard of glass or hooks for fishing, So every time they whipped Jesus' back, it would grab a hold of the back and rip apart his flesh. Gruesome. 
You know, one thing that doesn't get talked about much in the Staros is the plucking of Jesus' beard. They pluck this dude's beard. I, I, I whimper when I nick myself shaving, right? You shave? Anybody nick themselves this morning? Yeah, just me? I didn't shave. That was a joke. Come on, guys. I know this is intense, but you can still laugh. But they pluck this dude's beard. I, I, I don't know what kind of pain that is like, but I don't want to experience it. They spit on him. Now, we don't focus too much on the spitting. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but in the 21st century, I'm, I'm a peaceful guy. I'm anti-violence. But if you spit on me, we are throwing hands. It's going down. And I'm talking like street fight going down, like a kick to the groin, and then I'm going to pummel you because I'm small. I have to fight dirty. But think about this. They spit on his face. They spit on him. Maybe the worst thing they did, especially culturally, is they mocked him. You know, they, they put the, the purple robe on him. Oh, king of the Jews. They put the sign, king of the Jews, above his head. It was mockery. Do you know in the first century that mockery was one of the biggest things that caused people to not trust you? It's why in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, when the serpent says, did God really tell you not to eat the fruit? We all read that. If you read it critically, you go, that's a stupid thing that the serpent said because we all read what God said, right? The language in the Hebrew is that of mockery. So when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say it? It's more like, did God really say that? Are you an idiot? All of this fruit and you can't have this? What's wrong with this fruit? And you don't, you don't understand it until you put it in your context, right? We do this all the time with mockery. Did God really say to stay pure? <laughs> do you know how fun it is? Do you know how good it is? And all of a sudden, when you start getting made fun of in your group of friends because you choose to stay pure, you make decisions in your life that have real-life consequences for your future lover. But because it's mocked, it's mistrusted. Jesus mocked as he goes to the Staros. Then he has to carry the Staros. Crucified, nails in his hands and on his feet, then stabbed in the side. All of this, the picture of Staros. That's why people didn't say the word. It brought so much shame and many people argue on the cross, but Roman crucifixion you were naked. So Jesus, I'm not going to say it just because I can't prove it in Scripture, but culturally he was definitely naked on the cross, and nudity in the first century was the ultimate form of shame. Think about someone being crucified, stabbed, pierced, all of this, dying completely naked. Carries weight to it. He endured something. And when I think about the staros and what it really represents, the suffering that Jesus endured, it's not to make you feel bad. It's to recognize his humanity. It's to recognize that when we suffer, Jesus empathizes with you. And I'm not even here to say, oh, hey, you might be going through hell right now, but it wasn't as bad as Jesus. I think you do a disservice to humanity's suffering. It's not about comparing the things that you have gone through and say, oh, yours isn't as bad as mine. No, your suffering is real, and Jesus empathizes with you. The Staros. In fact, 
the natural pain that was suffered on the cross actually brought an end to the spiritual pain caused by the law. You know, like it's one thing to study lips scientifically. It's a whole nother thing to experience a kiss. Come on, all, all you people with your significant others, you remember that first kiss? Come on, you remember that first kiss? The butterflies, the emotions, bombs could be going off and I would not care. Okay? Mike, Mike and uh, Tracy Baird, they're, they're a family that go to this church. They're going to be embarrassed that I say this, but my first kiss was at their home when they weren't there. I was house-sitting for them, and what could I say? My wife couldn't keep herself off me. She says kissing leads to sex, and uh, it's true later on in life, right? But you study lips scientifically, and you experience a kiss completely different things. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, you can talk all you want about the historical aspect of Jesus, but experiencing Jesus in your life is completely different. I I get frustrated with Christian culture all the time, but Christian culture, as upsetting as it makes me, I have an experience with Jesus that no one can argue against. I have a love affair with a God who is so in love with me that my goal for communicating is to help you experience that same thing. Because if I can convince you that Jesus is real and you need Jesus, then someone else smarter than me can convince you the opposite. I want to encourage you guys and give you guys an atmosphere so that you could maybe experience Jesus for yourself. And one of the greatest ways you can experience Jesus is recognizing that he empathizes with your suffering because we all suffer. We all suffer because we're all addicts, myself included. We're all addicted. Name your poison. Some of us are addicted to the praise of others. I am. Some of us are addicted to working all the time. Some of us are addicted to accomplishments, some to winning, others to worrying, some to perfection, some to being right, strong, beautiful, thin. Perhaps you're enslaved to your own self-sufficiency. Maybe the top easy five that Christians like to focus on, you know, the drugs, the sex, the alcohol, the money, or the food. Or or maybe not the so obvious addictions like taboos, hang-ups, habits, tendencies, regrets, sins that plague us. Whatever it is, we all need recovery, myself included. And recovery isn't in the effort, although effort plays a part. Recovery is in the star house. It's in this picture of what Jesus accomplished so that you and I could live without shame, could live with identity, to focus on his humanity. Lastly, I'm going to close with this. I told you it was going to be short. Timmy, come on up here and make me sound beautiful. PC, come give me that. If you're taking notes, it's the final act of humiliation. The final act of humiliation. So Jesus is up on the cross, and he says, I thirst. And the scriptures tell us that the soldiers nearby grabbed this sponge that was attached to a hyssop stick. This isn't a hyssop stick. This is an American um, stick. (laughs) 
And it says that the soldiers there, when Jesus said, I thirst, they dipped it in the wine vinegar mix and then held it up to his lips for him to drink. And again, in the Greek, you miss this, but our whole Greek class, we talked about this moment. And the professor brought out an American stick just like this. And he taught on what this stick represented. I don't, I don't know if you, if you know this. I preached this, used this illustration like seven years ago in our church. I thought it was appropriate to bring it back. That's enough time, right? Seven's the number of completion. I'm about to complete it again. And in seven years, you can come back. I'll do it again. But in Jerusalem, you know, in the first century, they didn't have indoor plumbing, right? People are always like, the world's getting worse. No, it's not. You get the poop in luxury. In the first century, they created this system outside the walls of Jerusalem on the southwest side. This system where people would would go in these holes and then it would drain into the valley of Gehenna. And poor people figured out a way to make a dollar. They were the true hustlers. And what poor people would do is they would stand outside the city gates with a stick and a sponge. And they would wait for people to go to the bathroom and then they would wipe them with this. First century toilet paper. Pandemic happened in the first century. I can't imagine these things like going out of business, right? All of these off the shelf. That was a toilet paper joke. You guys missed it. And what they would do to keep disease from spreading so rapidly, because you know, that's an intimate thing to do. And disease would spread rapidly because of this. So they came up with a purificating, purification mixture, you know, wine vinegar. Many scholars believe that when the soldiers grabbed that stick with that sponge and dipped it in wine vinegar to sanitize it, that the reason for why this thing was even there was to wipe the feces off the people that Jesus himself created. Think about this. The creator of the universe is now getting fed in the most humiliating way, knowing that what was feeding him or giving him drink was used. A picture of humiliation, a picture of shame. I want to close with this this thought because... Jesus says, I thirst, and his thirst is quenched in a moment. And many scholars believe that the reason for why Jesus said, I thirst in this moment was so that his lips were wet enough so that he could declare the greatest statement in all of Scripture. And you'll have to come back next week to hear it. Talk about a cliffhanger. Sets you up good, Pastor. Come back next week as we finish out the seventh stain of Jesus as he said it is finished and what that means for 21st century Americans today it's one of the greatest messages you will ever hear as it gives us a reminder of our permanent identity as sons and daughters I I preach on I thirst this morning not to bring any shame not so that you feel bad for what our Savior did so that you get a perspective that Jesus went through hell so that you and I don't have to we worship an incredible God who can empathize with every single one of us in this room whatever you brought in this room today you laid at the feet of Jesus 
He loves you. He wants nothing but great things for you in your life. He wants to remind you who you are and he wants you to set you free from all the religious bullcrap that we go through in life. In Jesus, you find freedom. In Jesus, you find hope. In Jesus, you find identity. Rest in that today, church. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. I'm thankful that you endured the most humiliating death so that we could be raised with you, so that we could be given identity, so that we could be given hope. It's one thing to empathize with you. It's another thing to recognize that you empathize with us. So God, I just thank you. I thank you for being fully man. I thank you for enduring everything and conquering everything so that we could have a witness of how to do it, of how to suffer well. I pray for anybody in this place that might be going through any type of shame, would it just be removed in the name of Jesus? Would you give them a new identity, a new hope? We worship you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray.